Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Well, if you've got your Bibles, please do open them. We're going to be based in Luke chapter 24 from verse 54. Please do uh, put your thumbs in there. Let me just remind you where we're up to. Good Friday, as we know it, is in full flow. The Passover meal has been eaten. Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples and shared with them the bread and the wine. His body broken, his blood shed. The new covenant that he promises is now happening. And Jesus, well, Jesus then has taken his disciples, all but one of them, and walked them out to the Mount of Olives to a place we call the Garden of Gethsemane for the most important prayer meeting in all of history. But instead of praying, the disciples have done a classic and they've fallen asleep. As Jesus battles the greatest temptation, his final temptation, the disciples sleep nearby. Jesus is left with this moment where he chooses the will of his father and not his own. Then Judas, the one disciple who is missing, shows up with the temple guard and Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. And then Peter, in a moment of madness, pulls the sword from his side, wanting to defend Jesus. He jumps in, swings his sword, but he is no soldier. He's no swordsmith or whatever the correct phrase is. Misses the target, taking off the ear of a guard called Malchus. And Jesus is having none of it. Jesus isn't overly pleased by that and then he takes the ear of Malchus and sticks it back on, restoring the ear and I love that moment. See, Jesus' last miracle healing comes upon a man who's come to hurt him. Jesus' last miracle is to rescue the man who comes to arrest him. The upside down kingdom continues. And as Jesus is arrested, everybody flees. Mark's gospel says this, Mark 14, 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. But then you get this amazing verse after that. I feel like I need to mention it says this in 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I just feel like that is a bit of absolute gold. One of the most bizarre biblical moments. There's a fella in the garden in the middle of the night, dressed very inappropriately. I'm not sure if he's one of the disciples. He's called someone following Jesus. He's a follower. We don't get his name. But it sounds like there's someone in the garden there who seems to be ready for bed. Maybe he's turned up to the prayer meeting knowing it's going to be a sleepover. And, uh, and so he's come dressed appropriately for the prayer meeting. All he's wearing is a linen garment. The Greek says fine clothing. Not fine as in royal or, or grand. Fine as in super thin. He's wearing a super thin like dress to the garden of Gethsemane. And there's nothing underneath it. 
Like, what is he thinking? So at the moment when Jesus gets arrested and everybody runs off, I imagine a, a guard lunges forward, trying to grip onto this fella, and in the moment grabs, grabs the fine linen, and he just bursts out of it and then runs starkers through the garden. It's absolutely, I know why Mark puts it in there. I would have added that bit. But Luke makes no mention of it. I can't even give you how I'd apply that. Maybe you'd say, always be ready. You know, my mum would have said something like, make sure you're always wearing fresh underwear because you never know what's going to happen. Maybe your very thin linen garment could, could be ripped from you as you run from a guard. Luke's account starts in verse 54 of chapter 22. Then seizing him, that is Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Peter is having quite a day. The last 24 hours have been incredibly eventful. He's the one that's sent on that prophetic mission to prepare the upper room for the Passover. He's the one that's refused to have Jesus wash his feet. He's the one that's then changed his mind as Jesus has begun to explain his purpose for the washing. Peter is the one who's declared, I am ready to go to prison and to death. As Jesus has shared that the devil has asked to sift him like wheat. He's the one that Jesus has prophesied will deny him by the end of the day before the daybreak as the sound of the rooster crows. He's the one that's trying to do everything he possibly can to ensure that Jesus is wrong and that he can prove himself right. And he's the one that's locked the ear of this guy, Malchus, with a sword. And he, like everybody else, has run at the arrest of Jesus. But something must have stopped Peter. Maybe it was his pride. I said I'd go to prison or to death. Something stops Peter in his tracks and he U-turns and begins to follow Christ at a distance as he's taken back to the city, to the home of the high priest. This is a key moment in the gospel narrative. All four gospel writers give us an account of Peter's next few hours. Luke thinks it's so important that he makes no reference to what goes on inside the house of the high priest. He doesn't tell us about the kangaroo court. He doesn't tell us about the questions that Jesus has to answer. He focuses his attention on Simon Peter in the courtyard outside. A small crowd begins to gather. It's cold. It's nighttime, and someone lights a fire in the center, and Peter enters. Is he brave or is he just cold? I don't know, but I, you find him then sitting down at the fireside. And I want to know what he's thinking. What's his strategy? What's his plan? Where's his sword? Is he attempting to think about, I'll break in and I'll grab Jesus and I'll free him. What is going on in the mind of Peter? Is he just simply terrified, clinging to life, hoping to be close to his friend, to his saviour? Is he emotional? Is he just overtired? I don't know. I want to know the mind of Peter. But I reckon everybody at the fireside is talking about Jesus. Everybody's chatting through the events 
that have just taken place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everybody's talking about the arrest. And I imagine speculation is growing as to what will happen next. What's going on inside the house of the high priest? But Peter, I imagine, stares intently into the fire. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. His face is illuminated by the firelight. And the, and the servant girl spots Peter. If only he'd stayed in the shadows, she recognizes him as a friend of Christ. She knows he's been with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. You don't know him. Everybody knows him. It's kind of obvious that he's denying it, but I wonder, as those words came from his mouth, just how they felt to Peter as the first denial goes out. And it's not long before someone else spots him. In John's accounts, it's one of the high priest's servants who just happens to be a relative of the man who just a few hours earlier lost his ear in the garden. The person who spots Simon Peter is an eyewitness who was there in the garden who saw a man swing his sword at his cousin, taking off the ear. He was there when he saw Jesus take the ear from the floor and lick and stick it back to his face. You would remember the face of the person who took the ear off your cousin. It's you. There by, the pe there by the fireside is Simon Peter, wearing the same clothes that he was wearing in the garden. I wonder even if there's a few bits of blood splatter, maybe a bit of ear juice on his clothes. It's clearly you. You were with him in the garden and now he sat in the courtyard. He challenges Peter, didn't I see you with him in the garden? John writes, you also are one of them, Luke writes. Peter replies, man, I am not. The second denial, a second lie. Then it's not long before the third person accuses Peter. Once again, his mouth gets him in trouble. His accent gives him away. Peter hasn't stayed quiet. He could have hidden in the shadows. He could have stayed away. As Jesus had told him to keep away from all this stuff, Peter locates himself in the wrong place and cannot stay quiet. Maybe he's trying to explain to everybody why he's in the courtyard. Maybe he's trying to let them know while he's awake, why he's awake in the middle of the night. And verse 59 says, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fella was with him, for he is a Galilean. His northern twang gives him up. His distinct dialect matches that of Christ Jesus. He sounds like the Lord. He sounds like a Galilean. And I love that Jesus has a northern accent. And Peter replies, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I wonder if that moment, his accent, he tries to shift his accent a little bit. Maybe he tries to pronounce his T's or, or maybe he tries to talk proper. I don't know. 
But the third denial comes perfectly timed with the sound of a rooster. There in the dark, as the dawn begins to break, as first light appears, a rooster has been waiting for his moment. A rooster has been listening in. A rooster has been waiting for his cue. He's got a job to do. And his timing must be perfect. Because Christ has prophesied it. The rooster's morning call lands with this fateful prophecy. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Uh, You'll deny three times that you know me. Peter has no time to fix this. Peter has no time to undo his words. He can't change his mind. It says this, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. There's not a break in the sentence, no break in the moment. With the end of Simon Peter's final denial, out cries the rooster. And then you get this incredible sentence. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. In that moment, Peter sees Jesus. In that moment, I think Jesus has been taken from the house of the high priest and he's been brought out into the courtyard where he will be mocked and he will be beaten. They'll place a blindfold upon him and demand to know who hit him, shouting, prophesy, prophesy, who hits you, who hits you. In that moment, as the final denial is spoken, as the rooster begins to cry out, Peter lifts his head, and in that moment, his eyes catch first the eyes of Christ. And I'm captivated by that moment. That is the moment that I, I kind of can't escape. I need to know more about What does Peter see in the eyes of Jesus? Peter, tell me, what do you see as you look into the eyes of Christ? Does he say, I told you. I said you would deny me and you did. Do the eyes of Jesus judge him? You failed me, Peter. You let me down, Peter. How could you do this, Peter? You waster, Peter. You've disappointed me, Peter. Does Peter look in at the disappointment of Christ? Does he look in and see Christ upset? Does he look in and see a Jesus who is sad and is broken? Does he see an angry Jesus when he looks into his eyes? Is this a dirty look? Is this the look that could kill? I just can't see it. I just can't picture it. I'm convinced that Jesus, as he's been dragged outside for a beating, looks up and sees Peter. And in that moment, as he looks into Peter's eyes, he sees a man he loves. He looks on Peter with compassion. And I can't prove it. It's not there in the biblical text, but I know it from what I know of Christ Jesus. 
I'll have to wait till heaven to ask about that moment. Jesus, when you looked up and saw Peter, the man that had just denied you three times, tell me the look. What look did you give him as you stared straight in his eyes? What did you say? What did you mean? All I know is what happens next. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Wow. In view of Jesus, Peter is reminded of the words of Jesus. The words that he'd spoken a few hours earlier in the upper room. It's not judgment or condemnation that breaks Peter because in this moment of encounter, when he remembers the words of Jesus, this is what he said. He went outside and wept bitterly. He's already outside, by the way. It means he left the courtyard. He left the courtyard. He can't be in the presence of Christ anymore. And he breaks his heart. He weeps bitterly. But is it judgment and condemnation that breaks Peter or is it the mercy of Jesus as a God of compassion, a God who loves him dearly, looks into the eyes of his follower is it the grace of Christ that breaks Peter as Peter begins to hear the words prophesy prophesy who hit you who hit you Peter knows the power of prophecy he knows that Christ can make anything happen speak anything into being he knows who Peter knows that Jesus is being beaten and he knows who exactly lays each of the beats of the hits upon him. But Peter knows that before any hand is laid upon Christ, he knows his denial is the first blow that Jesus faces and his heart breaks as Jesus looks upon him with love. He went outside and wept, wept bitterly. This is snot and tears. This is full-bodied weeping. This is loud and distressing. This is expressing uncontrollable, audible grief. People would have heard the wailing of Peter outside the courtyard thinking about the moment of his betrayal, thinking about his saviour who now faced beating at the hands of men he loves. And when Judas realised the errors of his ways, he too left. Realising that his betrayal had caused now untold damage, he left and ended his life. And I wonder in that moment if Peter considers the same. He's devastated. Verse 61 said, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. But I wonder how much of that conversation Peter remembers. I wonder how much of the moment of that prophecy that Peter remembers. Amidst the grief, I wonder if he remembers the words that preceded that great prophecy. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Simon, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail and that that when you turn back, you'll strengthen your brothers. Wow, I wonder if he can remember what Jesus said, that he promised that he had prayed for him. 
and prayed that his faith would not fail. And then tucked there in amongst the words, Simon Peter had this other little prophecy. And when you turn back. And it's not, a, and if you turn back, and maybe you'll turn back. This is Jesus saying to Peter, and when you turn back, there lies a prophecy that Peter will not end his life, that there is ministry to come, that Jesus will heal and restore. There is hope, there is forgiveness, redemption and restoration. Peter has a future, he will recover, he will turn back his faith will not fail. Imagine in the moment of brokenness as you've betrayed and denied the one that you love, breaking your heart outside. And I wonder if it begins in this moment to shift as he remembers the words of Christ, as he looked upon him and saw a Christ who loves him and is reminded, he's praying for me. I wonder if as Christ looks upon Peter, he prays again, Father, Father, don't let his faith fail, turn him back. But in that moment, Peter has nothing. He has no courage, no confidence, no conviction. He has no loyalty, no fidelity. He's failed terribly. But it's not over for Peter. Because in just a few weeks time, 40 days plus three, Peter will find himself back in the courtyard of the high priest. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter will stand to have to explain how and with what authority he saw a man underneath that gate, beautiful, who was lame since birth, rise to his feet. He'll have to explain the authority. They'll question him saying, by what power and by what name do you do these things? And in Acts 4, 8, you get Peter's wonderful micro-preach. And it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people in Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the one that has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Do you see the change? The same location in front of the same man. This is not a fearful man. This is a man now filled with courage and confidence and conviction. This is a man loyal to his Christ, his saviour and his friend. This is a man full of faith and fidelity. Peter is fully restored and fully released into ministry. His failings could not hold him back because of the love of Christ fully restores. This is good news to us. This is good news to me. This is great news for me because I know that my sin separates me from God. My guilt and my shame turns me from Christ Jesus. My failure turns me away to hide. But I'm confident of this. 
that in our sin and in our brokenness, in our failure and in our denial, Jesus looks upon us with the same eyes that he looked upon Simon Peter. He looks into our eyes and it's not with judgment and condemnation, but it's with love. A love we don't deserve. A love we have no rights to, but Jesus looks on us with love. How do I know this? Because Paul writes the similar thing to the people of Rome. The church planted there in Rome. For while we were still, still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not for the perfect, not for the sorted, for the fixed and the finest, but for the broken. And it's because of his great love for us that he chooses to give up life. It's with love that he looks upon the sinner. This is the upside down kingdom that makes no sense. Surely Christ should look upon the faithful, the finest and the fittest, but he chooses to lavish his love upon the unworthy sinner like me. It's in our brokenness and our weakness that Jesus looks upon us. It's in our sin and in our unrighteousness that Christ dies. This is what Peter, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace we have been saved. Aren't those the most incredible words? Because of his great love for us, because God is rich in mercy, because of his grace we're saved, even though we're dead even though we're undeserving, dead in our sins, we are made alive. Peter, in his worst moment, encounters the greatness of God. Peter, in his worst moment, experiences the love of Christ, a love which restores, a love which heals, a love that fully brings back to life. We know the gospel. Guys, in this place, we're gospel people. We know it. But again, this morning, I just want to bring it afresh. I want your hearts to hear it, not for it to be something that gets locked away in your mind. I just know the gospel. I want you to experience it afresh this morning. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I am prone to sin. One of the great hymn writers wrote this line, which often I'll replay in my mind. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. I, I, I seem to find it too easy to stray away. I find it too easy to walk the path of sin and the path of death. And in my sin to deny Christ. But Jesus loves me. Jesus turns his eyes upon me with love, hoping that I will respond to his love and his grace and his mercy. And so this morning, sing another hymn with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. We're so unworthy, Lord, to look into the eyes of Jesus. Lord, our sin and our shame causes us often to turn away and to hide our face. But your love draws us, Lord. And we pray this morning that again you would draw us into your mercy and your grace. We are unworthy, Lord. We recognize how much we need you. God, catch our eye today. Help us to look upon your love and your grace and receive it this morning. Weak and wretched to be fully restored in your presence. Amen. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. Thanks for listening.